I am uh, particularly excited about my message tonight, but uh, I, I generally am. Maybe I'm slightly more excited than I, than I normally am. But uh, we as a church have been busy with the theme, Faith Through Tough Times, which uh, I find particularly exciting um, because the Bible I read is generally full of tough times, is generally full of people facing serious challenges. Um, and uh, ever since I, I started studying the Bible quite seriously <laughs> um, in high school, I only used to read Proverbs because I thought it would make me smarter. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, clearly my theology was a little bit dodgy at that stage. Um, but then when I, when I came to Europe of Your Life and I started reading the Bible and under, understanding what scriptural interpretation is about, I, I was drawn to the books people seem to avoid. I, I don't know. There are <laughs> there, 66 books, but some books we read more than others. And I, and I found it quite interesting that Christians sometimes stayed away from Revelation because, I don't know, it just sounds scary, um, very scary, um, until I got some teaching on that. Now, Revelations excite me as well. People never spend much time in Ecclesiastes either, you know. I think it's because it's generally a bit depressing. Um, and another one of those books, and, and that's the, the book that we will be spending some time in tonight, is the book of Job. Um, a, a, a large book, a massive book in the Bible that we, for some strange reason, I don't know, how many sermons in your life have you heard on the book of Job? I have quite a few here at the front. I, I think I've also heard a few in, in my own life, but generally we also avoid the, the book of Job. Now, um, scholars uh, estimate that the book of Job is actually older than the book of Genesis as it relates to when the book of Job was written down and recorded. But I thought that the book of Job is a very good book to work through in light of the theme that we are working with um, during this, this term, because I don't know if you know anything about the book of Job, but as you will see during this evening, um, Job suffered quite a bit. And it, um, in, uh, how can I say, when, when we look at the book, we see the backstory, but from Job's perspective, he had no idea what was going on. But let's look at, look at uh, Job a little bit. Now, in uh, Job 1 verse 1, it simply reads that there was once a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. He was blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. Now, this is pretty good. Now, if you can get that right, life will be pretty good in general. But Job had more than that. Job had it all. I mean, Job had, um, Job had a ton of camels, and uh, he had donkeys, and he had sheep, and he was, I don't know, maybe better off than, than most of the people. Scripture actually in this portion says that Job was the richest man in the land of Uz. So he had it all. And now what we see in the book of Job, and it's very important for us to keep this in mind, we see we have a rare glimpse into a conversation between God and Satan. 
The book of Job starts with this conversation where Satan comes to God and he says, I've been through the earth, I've been here and there, and uh, I've seen a lot. And God says to, to Satan, have you seen my servant Job? Is there anybody like my servant Job? And Satan goes, no, there's nobody like him. He's pre pretty special, but he is so special because you protect him all the time. You cover him all the time. You bless what he, everything he does. You bless his hands. You make him fruitful. You make him prosper. And that's why he loves you. That's why he, you know, obeys you because you're so good towards him. Now, this is already a little bit troubling. I don't know about you, but this is a little bit troubling to me. So God and Satan is having this conversation, and God gives in to Satan, or does he? You know, I, I can't imagine that God's giving in to Satan. I think God's just like, oh, my boy, you don't really know what's going on, but, but let's go, go ahead. But we must be very careful here in a sense because it seems like God is, is, is making a wager here with, with, um, with Satan. And um, the wager is Job's integrity. So I'm not sure how Job would have felt about that. But nonetheless, the Lord in his infinite wisdom agrees. He tells Satan, okay, well, go and take away everything from Job that you possibly can. Everything from Job that you possibly can, but don't touch his health and don't kill him. And so this is what Satan goes out to do. And so Job goes from having it all to having zero. Zulch, nothing. So on one, and it's not like there was like breaks in between it. I mean, the, the scriptures describe it, and I would love to get into the text, but then we're going to be here till 12 o'clock. But anyway... One servant after another comes to him. Um, so I was just with your, with your camels, and there was a raid of Chaldeans, and they came, and they took all the camels, and they killed all the servants except me, and I am here to tell you that it's all gone. And then another one comes just as that one left. Another one comes in and says, they have killed all your donkeys and, I'm, and all your servants, and I'm the last one to survive. And then all the sheep, and then all the cattle. So everything is dead. And then the last guy comes and says, Job, all your children are dead. All of them. Your seven sons and your three daughters, everybody is dead. So everybody, I mean, including the servants. So I'm not sure who was alive in Job's house. Job's household at the end of that day. In the next passage in verse 2, we see that his wife was still alive. So I'm not sure what kind of wife he had, but Satan didn't deem like it was necessary to take her. So <laughs> I don't know. We'll, we'll maybe see, we'll maybe discover a little bit more in the next verse why Satan left um, the wife there. But I don't know about you. Now, it's easy for us because we have the backstory. We, we, we sort of understand maybe a little bit better, although I don't think we truly understand why God is busy doing this. But if we try and do our best now and forget the backstory, and, and, and we just try and put ourselves in Job's shoes without knowing anything that, that we know, I wonder how you would have do it, been doing it at right about this stage, you know, messenger after messenger telling you 
that everything you've worked for, everything you've earned, everything that you've labored for, everything is gone. Kaput. And not that you can even say, okay, well, at least I still have the people I love. No, you don't. They also gone. They also finished. I don't know about you, but I would have been done. That way I would have gone, okay, well, thank you. The, this world is crazy, and it clearly does not matter who you serve, because just look at what happened to me. So, I mean, right here and there, I, I don't know about you, I would have been feeling that I would have been done with God. But Job was a special character. And look at what he says in Job 20. Job stood up and tore his robe in grief. Then he shaved his head and fell to the, to the ground. And this is the punchline punch to worship. He said, I came naked from my mother's womb and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had and the Lord has taken it away. Praise be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin by blaming God. You know, we, we sing that song ourselves. Blessed be. Do you know what you're singing? Do you know whose words you're singing? And do you know what reality he was facing when he said those words? Because next time you sing, you are basically saying, Lord, you can take everything away from me. And I will still bless your name. Everything. Everything away. And I will still bless your name. I think it's Matt Redmond that wrote the song. But I mean, I don't know. I'm Job is either insane or he knows God in a way that you and I don't know him. There's, uh, there's only one of two options left for us in this passage. But if we had to leave the story here and continue with the rest of the book, we would say it is enough. But there's another round of conversations between God and Satan. And Satan says, no, you know what? It's actually not all the stuff you have given Job. It is, it is the fact that he still has his health. If you take away his health, then he will curse you to your face. And what does God do? God doesn't say, oh, no. seriously, seriously. You took all his donkeys, you took all his camels, and you took his kids. And look what he said. Look what he said. He's still worshiping me. He says, blessed be my name. No, Satan, get out of here, man. You're wasting my time. No, God, God permits it. And Satan goes and strikes Job with probably what I could imagine is the most terrible disease on the face of planet Earth. Okay, I, if, I, if I think about the worst possible disease I could get, that's the disease Satan would give me. I'm, I'm sure of it. You know, I, I'm sure Satan wouldn't be going down the list of worst diseases in the world and have given Job like number four or five. I imagine Satan going down the list and go, it's number one. It, it always was going to be number one, so let's give him the worst disease possible. 
so in verse uh, 7 to 8 in chapter 2, so Satan left God and struck Job with terrible sores. Job was ulcers and scabs from head to foot. They itched and oozed so badly that he took a piece of broken pottery to scrape himself, then went, went and sat on the trash heap among the ashes. How are you doing right about now? Are you, are you getting the Matt Redmond tape ready? You know, are you going on your iPad, you're looking for, for Matt Redman to play Matt Redman to the, to the devil? To say, oh, listen to this, buddy. I don't care about the scabs and the sores. Listen to this. I don't know. My, my iPod would be flying towards the sun. And as my iPod is flying towards the sun, a whole string of swear words would also follow it. As, as, as I absolutely probably just lose it and curse God with every obscenity I knew. Maybe you are holier than I. Maybe you are closer to Job than I am, and I would love to be discipled by you then. So please meet me after the service. I want your number. I want to be Facebook friends with you. I want your email address because if you live like Job, I want to know you. But listen to this. And now I think comes the why Job, um, why Satan didn't take his wife because he had a, he had a role for his wife. Um, his wife said, so, so now in verse 9, his wife said, still holding on to your precious integrity. And I can just hear the tone in her voice. I don't know, can you, can you hear the tone in her voice? I can hear the tone in her voice. Um, you must read the book of Job. It is wonderful. It is probably one of the most comedic um, books in the Bible with the most sarcasm I've ever seen. You, you um, still holding on to your precious integrity. Are you curse God and be done with it? Listen to what Job tells her. He told her, you are talking, this is from the message, you are talking like an empty-headed fool. I mean, surely you would have gone, yeah, you do have a bit of a point. I mean, look at what, the kids are dead, the donkeys are dead, the camels are dead, Every, everything is dead, and look at me now. I can't even sleep, I am so itchy. Maybe, maybe you do have a point there. I'll consider that. No. What does he do? He says, you're talking like an empty-headed fool. You cannot see reality clearly, woman. We take the good days from God. Why not also the bad days? This is in your Bible. I don't know how often you've read this. Yeah. We laugh because it's painful. That's why I'm making it funny as well, because it's painful for me too. But this is what Job says. Not once through all this did Job sin. He said nothing against God. 
That's something special, eh? But the story doesn't end here. So Job ends up on the ash heap. And Job had friends, three friends in particular. There's a fourth one that comes around as well. And so if this wasn't enough, Job and his friends get into an argument about why Job is in the situation that he's in. Remember, they don't know what happened in heaven. All they have in front of them is Job suffering and pain for no apparent reason whatsoever. So I want to talk a little bit about the logic of, of Job's friends. And there's literally 30, about 30 chapters of this in the book of Job, where Job and his friends go back and forwards. And Job starts by cursing the day that he was born and going, you know what? It would have been better for me if I was not born at all. And after Job goes into this sort of like, I would assume is probably the holiest pity party one can have, um, one of his friends responds. And his friends in turn responds to say, you know what, Job? You know what the problem is here? It's you. You screwed up. Somewhere along the line, you did something wrong. And what has befallen you is a result of your sinful behavior. And this question, ever since Adam and Eve walked the planet, we have been asking ourselves, why does bad things happen to good people? And I suspect we will be asking this question until Jesus comes back. And Job, which is the oldest book in the Bible, it is so amazing for me that the oldest book in the Bible tackles this question. Why does not bad, horrific things, tragic, terrible things happen to good people for no apparent reason. What would your response be? If your friend lost a loved one tomorrow, lost all their wealth, lost their health, what would your response be? Unlike Job's friends, you know what we do today when bad things happen in our lives? God stops existing. So you're going along with life, everything is good, bad stuff happens, and all of a sudden, God vanishes from the universe. Then it gets better again, and now you start believing in God again. Then bad stuff happens again, and God vanishes from the universe. Do you know why Job's friends never went there? Because in a universe where God does not exist, suffering is absolutely meaningless. There's no point to suffering. Suffering is useless and cannot even be grasped or understood. 
Suffering is a product of our evolutionary journey as human beings. And maybe one day we'll figure out why we suffer like this and cause each other suffering like this. So Job's friends never go there. For them it was immediately, if Job is suffering, it is because of God's sovereignty. It's, it, there's an explanation, there's a logical explanation for this that we can grasp ourselves. So I think the first thing that we need to settle in our own hearts is please do not let God's existence sway upon the waves of your feelings. So I mean, because of the scientific world that we live in, we have ascended to such a lofty place of intellectualism that when suffering occurs, all we say is, well, it's because God doesn't exist. The question is never whether God exists or not. The question is, what is He like? And if He is like this, why is He allowing it? So Job's friends goes to the question of God's character and the way God, how can I say, shaped the universe. The best thing, unfortunately, that Job's friends did was, was the seven days that they were silent with him when they arrived. And let me tell you, that's the best thing you can do for your friends as well. If your friends experience tragedy, don't worry about what to say. Just be present. Just be present. That's all you have to do. Just be present. And they sit with Job for seven days because his grief was so great. And then they start talking and they just ruin it all. But, but to summarize Job's friends' arguments is basically that. One of his friends even goes as far as to say that God has not punished you enough. I think it's Zopa that goes, you know what, there's more. So I'm not sure how Job. Obviously, Job did not take this very well. <laughs> and uh, also, very importantly, Job does not give in to their arguments. He doesn't say, yeah, you know what, let me just go and sit quietly with God for a moment and reflect upon the sins of my life, and then let me repent of those sins, and then surely everything will be fine. What we need to note is that both God and Satan agreed that Job was blameless and righteous. So Job's righteousness is not a question, not even in the eyes of God or Satan. Because you know what Satan does is he's the accuser of the brethren. If there was anything wrong in Job's life, you can bet your bottom dollar that would have been Satan's opening line. You know what? You, have you seen his internet history? <laughs> this guy is dodgy, okay? That, that's that's where, where Satan would have, would have started. But, but there's nothing like that. Job's friends also don't know this, and that's why their arguments seem even more stupid than they, they are apparently. But what we must realize is that Job's friends are the arguments that we use to explain why bad th things happen to good people. It's strange for me, whenever a hurricane hits a place or tsunami hits a place, then we all always make some sort of Sodom and Gomorrah analogy, you know. It's because of the, those people are filthy, dirty sinners, you know. It's, it's God just cleansing the earth. 
No, but, 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 and you know where those arguments come from? They come from Christians like, like you and me. We, we use this simplistic way to explain things that, that I don't think we fully understand. I want to read a, a passage from Job, and I, I would have liked to read <laughs> a lot more. But I love the way he responds to his friends, and this is just from Job 13. Look, I have seen all this with my own eyes, and I heard it with my own ears, and now I understand. I know as much as you do. You are no better than I am. As for me, I would speak directly to the Almighty. I want to argue my case with God. As for you, you smear me with lies. As physicians, you are worthless quacks. If only you could be silent. That's the wisest thing you could do. Listen to my charge. Pay attention to my arguments. And Job, during his argumentation, as he is addressing God, he says, Lord, I'm not coming from a place where I am saying, listen, I'm right and you're wrong. Lord, I'm coming from a place where nobody can stand up to you. Nobody can argue with you, God. You rule the universe and you are in control of everything. How can I, a mere man, stand before God and make my case? It's amazing how Job realizes this. And it's his, but it's still his request to see God. And it's these amazing verses that you find in Job 16.19 and Job 19.25. Even now, my witness is in heaven. My advocate is there on high. I wonder who Job was talking to. I wonder who Job was hoping for. Because what Job realizes, he says, Lord, nobody can come to you. And he says, maybe there is somebody that can go to God in my stead. Maybe there's somebody that can go and stand before the Lord and plead my case. Because I'm not worthy. I can't do it. Job 19.25 says, But as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and He will stand upon the earth at last. The oldest book in the Bible, and Job foresees the Redeemer. He foresees Christ. He understands that we need a mediator between us and God. I'm moving quite quickly, but it's because we are limited for time. But the truth that will come through is simple. But Job and his friends go back and forth. And God eventually answers Job. He eventually shows up. One of Job's friends, um, um, it's actually the youngest of, of his four friends, also does a little bit of a speech um, just before the end of the book. And actually some, some scholars say he had a little bit of um, truth in his speech because in his speech he touches on the fact that God uses suffering to purify man's soul. And that Job mustn't assume that, that, that suffering is as straightforward as he thinks it is. Um, but he also ends up saying that, Job, you're in this situation because you, you, have, 
you have sinned. But the thing that becomes very clearly between the arguments between Fred, Job and his, his friends is that we don't live in a world where karma rules. We don't live in a world where you always reap what you sow. Because if we lived in a world where karma was a reality, then grace would not be needed. And our world would not be ruled by a personality, but our world will be ruled by rules. And our world is not ruled by rules. Our world is ruled by a living being. And so it's very important that in some parts of our life, obviously, if you get drunk and you get in a car and you go on the highway and you drive 160 miles an hour and you end up in a crash and you lose your legs, that there's a logical explanation for why you no longer have your legs. You behaved irresponsibly. So in some aspects of our lives, yes, our actions have direct consequences. But there are things that happen in our lives that we cannot explain. And what do we do with that? Job demanded an audience with God. And so God eventually comes to answer him. And God comes and answers him out of a storm. And God starts with saying, who is this that is clouding, you know, judgment and wisdom and is talking utter nonsense? God was actually not talking to Job. God was talking to his friends. Okay? So it's very important that God never rebukes Job for what he said. So Job's approach, Job's cries towards God, Job's lamentations before God, he was very pleased with. God was pleased with the way Job dealt with the question. Even though Job dealt with it in his own ignorance and his own limited perspective, God was pleased with Job's approach. Now, I don't know if you've read the last four, well, God answers him in two chapters and, and then in two chapters again. But I don't know if you've read it. Has, has any of you read it? Is it much of an answer? I don't know about you, but it's not much of an answer to me. You know, God uses four chapters to go on about how he makes it rains, how he feeds lion cubs, how he tames Leviathan, which we can assume is either a hippo or a crocodile, and there's another, another beast that he also, also tames. But God goes on, in four chapters, he asked Job these rhetorical questions over and over and over again. Literally, after five verses, you already get the point, but God goes on for another four, four chapters. What, what is God saying? He doesn't explain it to him. He just tells him, listen, I'm in charge of the universe. Chill. Isn't it funny that when these kind of things happen to us, we want some sort of logical why explanation? Do you understand why you cannot get that explanation? The purpose for God's answer is, Job, I can start explaining to you 
why I have ordered the universe the way I have ordered it when you understand all these things. So what God is saying is God is not saying he's not ready to have the conversation with Job. God is saying you are limited by your very nature for me to have this conversation with you. So when you understand the quantum mechanics of a black hole, and you understand time and space in its fullness, then come to me, Job, and I will explain to you why I do things the way I do things. It's not that God is not ready to talk to you. It's just that you're too dumb. <laughs> it's, it's not an insult. It's a reality. We are finite. God is infinite. Can you please explain to the cockroaches at your house how biology works? Why can you not explain to the cockroaches at your house how biology works? Because the cockroaches do not have a two and a half pound brain. It doesn't. It's incapable of understanding what you want to communicate to it. So even if you bribe it with a piece of bread and you make all sorts of sounds, the cockroach is still just going to want to do what a cockroach does, I guess. And so, it's not easy to speak on the book of Job. Because none of our experiences compares to that of Job's. And maybe even if you, as you have been sitting here tonight, I know I might, have, I might have certainly done that. I might have gone, oh, thanks, good sermon, but you have no cooking clue what I'm going through. You don't know my pain and suffering. Or you might go, well, what sort of suffering have you had? Who are you to talk to us about suffering? And although I have experienced a little suffering and I want to share a little bit of my story with you, the purpose of sharing my story with you is not for you to compare your circumstances to mine. But I want to illustrate to you what happens when we get to know each other. Because sometimes we make a lot of assumptions about who people, who people are. And I think in turn we make assumptions about who God is. And I think it's those assumptions that are the most dangerous. So probably this first sort of suffering I experienced in my life was when my parents got divorced when I was three years old. I mean, I can't even remember it. I just remember growing up in a house where my father didn't live in the house. And, you know, probably at around grade seven or eight, you start figuring out this is not normal. And there's a lot of pain that comes together with that as you start to understand that thing. I think, at, I think it was 13 or 12, I lost my first grandmother. Um, she, she died. She, she was my grandmother that lived on the farm. And we were quite close to her. My other grandfather died even before I was born. Um, and that was painful, but it was okay. I, I moved on from that. I think the, what was much worse than that was when I lost my father in grade 11, which was 
definitely not easy at all. And that was very difficult for me to deal with because losing my father, you know, it's like the person you want to experience life with and you want to tell about things and you want to invite to your wedding and you want to see him, you know, hold your first grandchild, but, you know, you can't do that. And so at that point in life, you know, it's funny, like with suffering, we think like if we've been through something bad, we can't go through something worse. I don't know why we think that. Not a helpful thing to think. But I got married, and me and my wife lost our first daughter when she was eight days old. Um, she died from a, from a heart condition. She was born with a, with a weak heart. And so then my, my dad's death and my grandmother's death and the divorce all of a sudden, yes, you know, it seems like things that are infinitesimal, you know. I don't think there's anything worse than losing a child as a parent. And uh, last year, and this is where it gets tough, I was doing my best to avoid this. My son was diagnosed with an incurable brain disease. That will more than likely claim his life. We celebrated his third birthday yesterday. And the answer God gives Job. No, I don't want to do the wobbly voice. No wobbly voice. Because I want, to, I want you to hear the truth. I don't want you to just hear my emotions. The answer God gives Job does not satisfy me. It doesn't. It's great. I know that's the way it is. And I know it won't satisfy you either. And even though I, I believe fully that God can heal my son, and I want to believe that God will heal my son, I need to live in a tension where I have to accept the reality and trust God for something more. But the thing that I cling to is another thing that Scripture is full of. Because even though God is God and we are humans and we have to accept that, and Paul says it in Romans 9, he says, Who are you to question God? And Jesus in, in John 9, 2, his disciples ask him, Lord, um, and they came to a blind man, and, and the disciples ask him, Who sinned that this man is blind? That his parents sinned? And Jesus said, This is for the glory of God. This man's blindness is for the glory of God. And I don't know how long that guy had been blind for. 30, 40 years maybe. He'd been born blind. Jesus steps into his life and he says, Your blindness, your damaged human body is for my glory. And why is that? Because of this. Because Scripture says, 
that God is good. And so we don't serve a God that we don't know. We serve a God that we do know. And I have over 30 references here to God's goodness. Psalm 119 verse 68 says, You are good, and what you do is good. Teach me your decrees. Psalm 107 says, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. Psalm 149 verse 9 says, The Lord is good to all. His compassion on all He has made. Genesis 1-3-1 says, God saw all that He had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning. How abundant are the good things that you have stored up for those who fear you, that you bestow in the sight of all on those who take refuge in you. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected. Every good and perfect gift is from God above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. James 1, verse 17. And I can literally go on and on and on. I have three pages of it here. And that's what satisfies my soul is that we not only have a God that is big enough, we have a God that is good enough. God is not arbitrary. And if I had another hour, I could explain to you why, even if there was an inkling of arbitrariness or evil in God, we should be pitied more than any living thing in the universe. God is not arbitrary, and He does not have a hint of evil in Him. He is good always and forever. But you know what you need even more than that? You don't need to hear it. You need to feel it. You need to experience it. And as Job pleaded to see God, you need to plead to see God. That is the only way I'm coping, by clinging to God's goodness and clinging to His faithfulness. I don't know what my future holds. I don't know where my story is going to go, but I am making damn sure God is in it. And it's not easy. I know the truth. And His grace sustains me. But it's a little bit like Paul, where he says, we are struck down, but we are not killed. I'm telling you, that's how I feel most of the days. I feel like I'm defeated, but I haven't lost. You know? Very, very important. This is the, my, my story from a day-to-day -day basis is not Roses and fairies and angels meeting me in the morning. It's not like that at all. But I want to leave you with this last verse, and then we're going to pray. Job 42. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything, and no one can stop you. 
You asked, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It is I, and I was talking about things I knew nothing about, things far too wonderful to me. You said, listen, and I will speak, and I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. And this is the, the punchline. I had only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said, and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. I don't know where you find yourself, but the number one obstacle to your journey with God is what you think you know about Him. And if you are not ready to repent about who you think God is, you will remain stuck. Because he is not what you think he is. He is more than you can think or imagine. And that's what faith is about. That's what we need to cling to. And if you are not suffering yourself, then it is your mandate to find somebody who is suffering and sit with them. Because we are the body of Christ and the whole body cannot be in pain because if the whole body is in pain, it will die. That's why part of the body is in pain and part of the body is healthy so that the healthy part can take care of the part that's in pain and not worry about the next luxurious item they need to buy, but rather take care of the people that are suffering. So it's great if things are great in your life. Thank God for it. And I hope it remains that way for the rest of your life because then you have a ministry towards the people that are busy suffering. And you don't have to walk very far to find them. There are people suffering in this building. There are people suffering everywhere. So if you're doing fine, find somebody who is not. And how you do that is you do that by listening to their story. Let them tell you their story. That's what we're here for. So I want to lead you in a prayer. Where we will ask God to show us who He really is. And that we will cling to that with all of our hearts. I don't know about you, but I, like Job, want to see God. Until the day I die, that will be my prayer request. Lord, show me your glory. Father, we humbly come to you, Lord. We are but dust and ashes. Your servants, Lord. Father, our view of you have been obscured by the enemy. And our perspective of you have been clouded with lies. We repent, Lord of the lies that we have believed, Lord. And Holy Spirit, will you come and remove the veil from our faces and allow us to see God for who He really is, good and loving forever. It's our simple prayer, nothing complicated, God, but we will not rest until we have seen your face. It is the desire of my heart, Lord. And we find that desire so very often in our suffering, Lord. So if there is not suffering in our lives, Lord, help us 
to sit with those who are suffering, Lord, and to trust you for miracles and for greatness. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.